0: Philippians chapter number two, if you would turn there, we are continuing just working through the book of Philippians. If you're new with us, this is our preferred method of teaching and preaching is just to pick a book of the Bible and to work through it. So we're on a slow burn through Philippians. We're in the middle of chapter two, and I think this is sermon number 14, maybe 15, So here we are just in the middle of chapter 2. We're going to read verses 12 through 18 because the section, really, if you break it out, 12 through 18 is the proper section. We're going to cover two verses, though, 12 and 13 this morning. But I want us to read the whole section. We'll cover the back half of the section next Sunday. So Philippians 2, let's begin reading in verse number 12. Wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. A short verse, but I love that verse. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. We're going to cover verses 12 and 13 this morning. We're just going to talk about this thought, working out what is worked in. Philippians 2 is, if you're a theology nerd, it is a playground. These couple verses here, verses 12 and 13, are just filled with defining of terms, trying to figure out how these words and these two verses work in light of the entirety of Scripture and trying to figure out what exactly this means. And if if you're like me, you read these couple verses here, 12 and 13, and you think, we work out our own salvation. I, I thought we... And that salvation was a gift. How do we work out our own salvation? And what does fear and trembling have to do with that? Are that I was supposed to be joyful, not fearful in Jesus? And how does God work this in us? Am I working this out, or is God working this in us? and, and how does that work? Which one is it? And we come to this text, and there's, there's so much to, to grapple with, and there's so much to define, and there's so much to understand. And we'll do that this morning. that's our task this morning. but I do want you to understand first that you can't divorce these two verses from the context that surrounds them. You can't just bite off two verses and go run with them and do with them what you want. You have to understand the part in light of the whole, and you have to understand that that 12 and 13 are deeply woven into the fabric of the thought that Paul had laid out in chapter 1, verse 27, that we should live lives that are in line with the gospel that our conversation should be as becometh the gospel of Jesus. And you have to understand these words in light of that. And that's what Paul has been doing now for some period of time that live in light of the gospel and understand that some suffering will come your way with that. And look, has God done anything for you? And have you felt anything inside? Well, then don't, don't have strife. Don't have vain glory. Have humbleness. Have lowliness of mind. Put other people's needs first. That's what Jesus did for us. He came, was a man, he became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross, and in that humility, now he is highly exalted, and he's lifted high, and now he's just continuing on with the thought. And Paul is giving them, he's continuing on this thought of Christian character, and Christian conduct, and how should this be lived out, and what should our lives look like in light of the gospel of Jesus. So this is a continued thought, and Paul says, first, just with our Christian conduct and character, it's, he's just, he simply encourages the church. He he goes to verse number 12, and he says, wherefore, my beloved, this this means dear friends, wherefore, in light of what I've already said, my my dear friends, this is very similar to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where Paul refers to the Philippians, and he says, look, has there been any affection, has there been any mercy, he calls it bowels, but it means affection. Have you felt anything for me? Have I felt anything for you? Then fulfill ye my joy. He's drawing on a very personal relationship and he's making this deeply personal with this church. And he says, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He says, look, I was with you and I was teaching you and you were obedient and you were getting it. And now I'm gone and I'm not with you and I'm away from you, but you still continue to get it. And you still continue to obey and you have worked out a pattern of obedience in your life. You, I'm commending you for this, my dear friends. You have continually and progressively obeyed, and he just starts with some some very simple encouragement that, my dear friends, based on your long-standing obedience, do this: work out your own salvation. Based on our relationship, based on your continued obedience, I want you to work out your own salvation. I'm curious to know this morning how many of you have ever adopted a stray dog. Raise of hands. Who's adopted a stray dog? You all are much more merciful than the first service. I'm t- The first service, there was like two people. So good for you. Okay, so. If you've ever adopted a stray dog, or maybe your spouse has adopted a stray dog and you resist and you're like, that is not my dog, and I'm not making it part of the family, but they did it anyway. Maybe you've seen someone do this. You can get this, okay? You find this this dog, and your heart goes out to them, and and here it is, it's abandoned and, and it's malnourished, and it's feeble and scrawny. And in an instant, you decide, or maybe you call your spouse and get their stamp of approval, but you decide. I'm going to take this dog home. There's no collar. There's no ownership here. I'm going to take this dog home and I'm going to make it part of my family. And in a moment, that dog's life changes. It goes from abandoned to adopted. It goes from homeless to a home. It goes from isolated to loved. And you bring this dog home. But what you know it, that dog comes with baggage. There's a lot of things that your now adopted stray dog has picked up over the weeks or months or years or however long it's been living that, that are not good. You go to pet it and it recoils or maybe even worse, it tries to bite you. You, you try to show it love and it doesn't know what's going on. It, it freaks out and it barks at random things. It's, it's chasing everything around and, and barking at that. It's terrified of its own shadow. And positionally, this dog has changed. You've accepted it, you've adopted it, you've brought it home, you've put it in your family. Positionally, it's good to go. But constitutionally, inside, there's still some progress that needs to be made and there's still some behaviors that needs to change and the love and the care of the owners needs to be materialized in this dog's life. And you begin to teach the dog, no, that's furniture, not a toilet. We don't do that here in this house. You begin to teach your dog, no, those are the children, you don't bite them. You love them, you protect them. No, that's daddy's friend, you can't, you can't growl at them. Mom-in-law can come in and you can growl at her, but not daddy's friend, that's not okay. And you begin to try to help this dog work something out that you've done for it. And, and wouldn't you know it, over the course of time, generally speaking, that dog begins to learn. And it begins to accept the household rules. It begins to know what's expected of it. And it doesn't, it doesn't suppress the dog now that it's in the home and it can't do this and it can't do that. It begins to actually give liberty to the dog. And it begins to flourish and it begins to live in light of how it was made. And now it, it doesn't run from your hand. It runs to your hand. And it wants to lick you. and it wants, it, You, you want to pet him and he wants you to pet it. It begins to do things that you didn't even ask it to do. It begins to protect your kids. It begins to go on guard duty, you know, this, this little bitty rat-looking thing. All of a sudden, it's going to just be a sentry and just stroll around and protect the house and bark at the thunder and chase the lightning away. And, and all of a sudden, the dog begins to, to change. And the association begins to bring about a transformation. Not, not to make it part of your house. It's already in the house. You adopted it. It's there but to make it more like the house. And in a roundabout way, this is what Paul is telling the Philippian church. He's telling them to, to work out what's already been worked in. To begin to take their task of Christian growth and maturity very seriously. And there's this, this, this contrast to, hey, I'm not with you anymore, and it's in my absence, and you've been obedient in my absence, so I want you to work out your own salvation. I want you to take responsibility for yourself. I want you to begin to think independently of me, but obedient to what I've told you. Independently, I want you to begin to think, what does living my life in light of the gospel mean? What does this look like for for my scenario? I want you to take responsibility for your spiritual welfare, and I want you to do this for yourself. This honestly could be a very good verse that a parent would give a child that's being married off. Or a parent would give a child that's going off to college that, hey, I've been with you and I've been able to help, but now I want you to work out your own salvation. I want you to take it personally and do it for yourself. And this is, this is not working for your salvation. This is working out your salvation. There's a big difference. There's a world of difference biblically. This is not, I'm going to do something to earn right standing with God. This is not as some would say, based on their book of the Bible, First Opinions 1-1, God helps those who help themselves. That's antithetical to Scripture. That's not a verse. That's not a proverb. That's nowhere in the Bible. That's not the way that it goes. Salvation is its a gift. It's grace. So let's just make something very clear from the onset. That salvation and right standing with God and forgiveness in heaven as your home, those things are not based on what you do, they're based on what Christ has done. That that is how you are justified is by faith and faith alone. And remember, even you could understand that if you didn't have the whole Bible and you just had the book of Philippians, you could get this. Paul wrote to them in his first couple verses, he calls them bishops, deacons, and saints. He says, You're saints. He writes to them in chapter 2, verse 1, and he draws on these rhetorical questions. Is there any comfort in Jesus? Is there any love of God that you felt? Is there any fellowship of the Spirit that you felt? So he's writing to people that they know the comfort of Jesus. They know the love of God. They know the fellowship of the Spirit. These are Christian people. But even outside of Philippians, the Bible makes us clear over and over and over and over again that we are saved not by our merit and not by what we do, but by what Christ has done for us. Ephesians 2 tells us that we're saved by grace, His grace, through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, God has done this for you in His grace, but He wants to change you and work through you and actually produce good works inside of you. This was a a great illustration that Paul gives in Romans 4. He takes Abraham. The Jews considered Abraham to be the most righteous of all the Jews. And he takes Abraham and says, look at his life and look at how he was justified. Was he justified because he left his homeland? Was he justified because he did this or did that? No, he was justified by grace through faith. And he says specifically of Abraham in verse number 5 of Romans 4, that it wasn't based on his works, but it was believing on him that justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted unto him for righteousness. So the Bible is abundantly clear that if it was not grace and it was our works, grace would no longer be grace. It would be a transaction. It would be something, I'm doing this and God is giving me this in return. But that's not the way God works with our salvation. It's not, I'm going to do this and there's some sort of cosmic transaction where now he will exchange right standing. He will give me some credit. He will give me some merit because of what I do. No. There is a great exchange that takes place, but it's, it's His grace. It's that I have my sin, and He is going to remove my sin and take it from me, and He's going to give me His righteousness freely, not because of what I've done, but because of what He's done. That's the exchange that takes place. My sin is gone, and His righteousness is imputed. It's given to me, and that's based on His grace. So understand clearly what salvation is in the Bible. It is not something that we work in order to attain that is extremely clear. Christ has already done a decisive work for you on the cross. If you have not been saved, I hope that you will be saved, even this morning. If you have been saved, then you can know that before you were even sick, he developed a remedy. You were isolated and now you feel loved. You were orphaned and now you're adopted. You were homeless and now you have a home. You were at odds with God and now you're forgiven and now you're accepted and now you're no longer an enemy of God but you are forgiven. But what happens when he does this for you? In an instant, you change positionally and you are given salvation as a gift, a free gift from God but you accept salvation as a a, a fearful, lustful, maybe depressed person and what happens... Ten seconds later, you're still probably fearful and lustful and you still have some baggage and you still have a lot of patterns of disobedience that you've developed over the years that need to be worked out. Positionally you change, but constitutionally inside you're still shallow and you're still lustful and there's still work that needs to be done there. Like a student who works out a math problem to its inevitable conclusion, you need to work out your salvation to its inevitable conclusion and this means that you are to take responsibility for this. There's there's a personal onus on you, on me. That if God has done something for you, then there should be a responsibility that we are claiming that I am going to take this seriously. I'm going to take my Christian growth and I'm going to to take it personally. But then Paul says that our salvation should be worked out with two words. He says, with fear and trembling. I won't go super in depth on this. You can study on your own time. This particular phrase is used three other times in the Bible, uh, twice in 2 Corinthians and once in Ephesians. And you can study out a little more in depth what this means, but what this means is that we are taking responsibility for our Christian growth and we're not doing that casually or lightly. We are doing this standing in an awe of a living God. There's a deep biblical concept of the fear of God, which is healthy and biblical and great. Misunderstood, it's terrible. It's not fear of God, I stand over in the corner and shrivel up and hope that he just squashes the other people and doesn't squash me. That's not the fear of God. The fear of God is a reverence and an awe and a respect for who God is. He's my father, I can approach him boldly, I can go to his throne of grace, I have access to him, I love that, but he's my heavenly father and I have an awe of that. I have a respect for that. And Paul is is pushing into this idea. And you, you, for one way or another, have understood this in your life. I remember as a youngster, elementary and junior high, probably three different times, my family went to a buffalo farm. I'm not exactly sure why my dad wanted to go to a buffalo farm, but he would take us along. I don't know the motives behind it, but we would go there. There'd be buffalo around, it was like 45 minutes from our house, we would inevitably get buffalo meat and we'd eat some buffalo burgers, which is the best way to have a burger. Buffalo meat is fantastic. If you've never had it, try it. If you have it in your freezer, give it to me. I would would love to take that (laughs) off your hands. But at this buffalo farm, I have no idea why. Maybe to draw people there to buy their meat, I have no idea. But they had a pet lion and they named the lion Goliath. Because this, I mean, a lion's big, just in general, but the name was extremely fitting because this lion was ginormous. Like, its granddad was a buffalo or something. Like, it was a huge male lion, and they had it in this cage of sorts, and you could get very, it wasn't a petting zoo, like, you weren't reaching in there to touch it, but you you could, actually, you could have done that. But you would get very close to this lion and there was a cage and all this and you felt secure. You, you were a little, there was a little bit of tepidness inside of you, but you would approach this and you get close and there would be not a fear that he's going to escape and eat me because if that was the case, you wouldn't be near the cage. You had a comfort level that I could approach this thing, but there was a healthy awe of Goliath the lion. You would look at this thing and there was just this automatic respect for this animal that seemingly could just swallow you whole. It was massive. And in many ways, our fear and trembling and approach to our Christian living and to our living God is that of an awe and a respect and a majesty that he deserves. And Paul is drawing on this, but he, he's probably even pushing it a little further than that and saying, I want you to take your spiritual welfare upon yourself, and I want you to take that seriously seriously. I want there to be a sober-mindedness about you working out your own salvation. Here's how you could say, verse 12, My dear friends, you have a long pattern of obedience, and I want you to take your Christian maturity personally, and I want you to be very serious about it. And that's the challenge. That's where it starts to hit home is take this upon yourself, do something with this, don't just take salvation and th- say, thank you, I've got to get out of hell, free card, buy. But take it, live it out, live in light of the gospel, and do that very seriously. And many times, if we're honest, we take a lot of things seriously, but we relegate our spiritual welfare to the shadows. And we begin to take other things seriously, and trump and supersede our own spiritual growth and maturation. Some of you take your doTERRA or your Rubbermaid or your Plexus or your essential oils very seriously. (laughs) And I'm fine with that. You you got your little social media footprint and you got your platform and I'm going to leverage this to make some little essential oil evangelists so I can, you know, take part in this pyramid scheme and make some money and and maybe it'll help people's health too. Right? So some of you love essential oils and you hate me because I said that, but... Maybe it helps, helps your health, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's filled with nicotine and you just want to keep taking it. I don't know. But whatever it is, you take it seriously. I mean, you're locked and loaded and, I mean, you are, you're, you're fixated on your little tribe and, and pushing this stuff forward. Some of you take your hunting or your fishing very seriously. We had our skeet shoot yesterday. It was a great time. My shoulder's a little bit sore after shooting a 12-gauge 100 times yesterday. And you could tell, some of you guys, you... You were decked out. I was not. I had jeans and tennis shoes and was just kind of walking around (laughs) shooting a gun. But some of you take it very seriously. You've spent thousands and thousands of dollars and you have the gear, you have the equipment, your practice up, you have the day off request submitted eight months in advance so that you can get this time away with your crew to go hunt and you have the tags bought and you're ready to slay it. Deer, turkey, rabbit, turtle, whatever, it you're going to slay it. You're going to get it. And you and you're serious about it and, you're, and you and you you love what you do some of you take your fitness very seriously you downloaded every Beachbody workout that there is and you're going to do them all this year because your fitness is going to be the best. Some of you take your career very seriously and, and you've pushed your family or your spiritual walk to the side because you've taken that very seriously. It's not wrong to take these things seriously, but it is wrong to allow those to supersede your spiritual walk. And what's, what can happen if you're not careful is I'm taking that and that and that and that seriously, but my spiritual maturation is in the shadows, And Paul writes to the Philippians, a great church, a great church. And he says, look, be responsible for your own spiritual growth and take this very seriously. With with trembling and with fear and with reverence of this, you should do this with soberness of mind. And if we're honest, we're many times just way too casual about our own spiritual walk. I get tickled. I normally don't. If someone gives me one of these, I don't take the next, you know, 30 seconds to rebuke them. I normally just kind of smile and laugh it off. But I I hear lots of stuff from from some of you even. And I love you to death, but I get tickled with, well, pastor, I just, it's tough to get to church. I mean, the kids, and it's in the morning, it's early, it's Sunday, it's tough. Those four kids got out the door at 7 a.m. the previous five days for school. Up, ready, showered, food, breakfast, out the door at 7 a.m., church is at 10.30. Like, let's just call a spade a spade. I don't buy that. I get that it may be tough, it may be difficult, those sorts of things, but it's, it's not because it's just so inordinately difficult to get the family to church. Let's just be honest, there's a lack of seriousness about it. You are serious enough to get the job done on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, but this isn't just that important. There there are times in our own life when we we tell ourselves lies. I'm just too busy for Jesus. You you made the three doctor's appointments and the one dentist's appointment, and the salon appointment that you have every three weeks religiously, and you made that, and you watched all of the pirates games this week, and you went to one of them, and you were able to fit all of that into your schedule, but Jesus just won't fit. Like, let's let's just be honest. It's just not a priority. It's not a matter of I just can't work this in, I just can't fit this in. We put into our lives what we want, what we want to. Don't make excuses. And, and I'm speaking to myself this morning. I'm just as guilty of this on different occasions as as you are. That if we're honest, there's just a lack of seriousness about our spiritual growth and maturation. Some of you in your business or in, in your fitness, you hit this level where you feel like you've plateaued And things are just, I'm putting in the same amount of work, but I'm just just—I'm not seeing growth and I'm not seeing progress in this area. So what do you do? You begin to evaluate and you begin to change and you begin to put in some extra work because you want to continue to to get your lift on and and lift this much or you want to continue to see this many sales in your job or whatever it may be. And And you adjust and you put in some extra work to try to push through that growth. But many times in our spiritual life, it's stale and it's stagnated and it's just sitting there and we're just okay with it. There is there is no push. There is no effort. There is no, let me evaluate, let me try, let me try to do something different. Let me change up my prayer life. Let me ask someone what's helping, what's working for them. Many times we just we're all too satisfied with just the status quo of going through a Christian life. And Paul, in this verse, it's a beautiful verse. It's oftentimes misunderstood, but it's a beautiful verse where Paul says, My dear friends, you have a long pattern of obedience, and I want you to take. I want your salvation to be worked out. I want you to take responsibility for this and take your your maturation and your your spiritual welfare very seriously. Do it with this mindset. But thank the Lord, verses 12 and 13 go together. That it's not just verse 12 because I would be utterly frustrated if it was just verse 12. But it's not. Paul says in verse number 13 that this is is sovereignly enabled. He says, verse number 13, 13, For it's God which worketh in you. God has done something for you in salvation. Loved you, adopted you, forgave you, gave you heaven for free, cleansed all your sin. He did that. And a proper response to that is I love him and I see what I've been given. And I want to live in light of that. And I want to share that with other people. And I want that to be my life. And I want to take my Christian walk very seriously. But thank the Lord he empowers us and gives us energy even in that. It's not just, I will do all this for you, and now you go do this all on your own, see you in heaven, adios, later. No, it's, I'm going to do this for you. A response is, Lord, then I want to live for you. And even in our living for him, he enables and he works in us. Perhaps Paul recognized the danger of what someone would say about verse 12 and put in there that, hey, Don't assume that you're going to do your part and God does his part. Know that it's it's God who is the one who empowers. And there's a beautiful tension in the Bible between our effort and his energy. Romans 7 says it this way. Paul writes and he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. But he says, for to will is present with me. But how to perform that which is good, I find not. Paul says, I have a sense of willpower here, but I need more than that. Without the energizing of God, this does not happen. Colossians 1.29, I think, says it best if you were to take one verse in all the Bible. Paul says, I labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. I am putting forth effort and I am trying, but I understand that I have to be energized and He has to be working in me. This isn't just a matter of pulling myself up by my own bootstraps and willpowering my way through the Christian life. I actually am doing something, but it's God who's providing the energy and putting the wind in my sails. Probably the best example I could have of this is just personally. I went through quite a few years of my early Christian life trying to will myself to right behavior for a lot of reasons. Maybe I felt guilty, maybe I felt like I needed to, maybe I wanted to deep down, but I, I tried to will myself and in a long, about 17 years of age, I began to seek the Lord just because I wanted to. Just just to know him, not to find a verse that I could take and then beat up somebody and have more knowledge about the Bible with. Not so that I could, you know, do it just because someone told me to, but because I wanted to. And the the Bible began to become alive. It began to not just hit my head, but it began to hit my heart. And things began to just kind of jump off the page, and it began to change in, in my prayer life that was non-existent really, but I had tried to, to, you know, get it jump-started a few times. I had tried to work it out 14, 15, 16, tried to do that. And, and frankly, it was just terrible. It was drudgery and dutiful and it was, there was nothing there. There was no energy. There was, it was no fun, but I was trying to do it. And I found that I began to seek him just for him. And I began to experience there was this faint spiritual pulse in the background, but all of a sudden that spiritual pulse began to, to really pulsate. I began to have a heart to serve Jesus and serve through the church, not because Jesus was there, it began to come out inside of me. I began to experience spiritual victory where once I had I just struggled so deeply. I began to learn that without Him I can do nothing. I need to show up and I, I, need, to, I need to be there and I need to, I need to try, but there needed to be an utter sense of dependence upon him and upon his power. Not just for salvation, but that process and the gospel should hit me over and over and over again where I come to him in desperate need, daily, still currently, daily, of Lord, I need you, I need your help, I need your power. I cannot go through today in my own power. I cannot do what I'm supposed to as a Christian in my own power, but I need you And if you're a Christian, the truth is that he lives inside of you, and he wants to release his boundless resources inside of you. The Scripture tells us that if you're saved, that you are, according to Ephesians, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And Romans and Galatians teach us that the Spirit pours out the love of God in our heart. And the Spirit causes us to cry, Abba Father, it causes us to cry out for our dad. And something begins to happen inside of us that is there and is beyond us, honestly. And our Christian walk is meant to be done in his power and in his resource. And this, when he says that it's God that works in us, it doesn't mean that God is going to do everything for you and you can just lay there and it will take place. But it does mean that God will supply the necessary energy and empowering for your Christian life. I just a couple weeks ago had behind my house, we had a kind of a, a... a small backyard, and we had a wood line, and my property extended a bit, so Jeff Sager, who comes to the first service, came, and he helped me. We cut down some trees, and we cleared some brush, and we got all the land level, or the land cleared, but it was still, it went on a, it went up, and it went to the side, and just, you know, it's not a backyard. You're not going to plant it. It's a hill. So I asked Jeff if he would help me. I knew that Jeff had a, had a backhoe. He has this blue backhoe that he calls Big Blue. So Jeff said, yeah, I'm retired. I'd love to come over. I'd love to help. So Jeff came over and he dropped off his backhoe and it sat there for two or three days before we did anything with it. But it sat there. And you know, that land didn't move one bit. All the power, all the energy, everything we needed was sitting right there in that machine. It's a powerful machine. It was sitting right there, but but the land never moved. It took Jeff showing up and sitting, I don't know how to operate it. He sat on it and he knows how to operate it. And he began to scoop and shovel and move and be, in no time, five, four or five hours. That went from hilly crazy all over the place. He was ripping out stumps and he was moving dirt over here and he was moving my land. Did Jeff have to show up? Did he have to put forth some effort? Did he sweat a little bit? Yeah, he did. But 99.9% of the energy that was needed was in that machine. It was fueled, and that power, and that metal claw, and those hydraulics did almost all the work. But Jeff had to show up and get on the machine. And in your Christian walk, you're going to have to show up. You're going to have to have a little bit of discipline. You're going to have to talk to God. You're going to have to read your Bible. You're going to have to come to church. Those sorts of things have to happen. But understand that that's, that is that much of this big equation God works in you and through you and it's he which supplies the power and you can show up but without a dependency upon his resources you will you'll white knuckle your behavior and it won't work and some of you have done that and you know exactly what I'm talking about you've tried and tried and tried and tried but it does your grip gets tired after a while and Paul says look Take this seriously. Take your Christian growth and your Christian maturity personally, but understand that it's God which works in you. This means that he gets all the glory and we get no credit. This means that it's his gracious aid and we give the glory to him and he works in us both to will and to do. He gives us the desire and the power. And many times he'll even change your desires. Augustine is a long dead church father late 300s early 400s one of the most noted and quoted church fathers through history i would disagree with him on some stuff but he has much that's good but i love augustine's testimony of salvation augustine was a was a sex addict and he knew he, did, he needed god but he did not want to give in because he knew that that would have it had to change if he repented and turned to jesus and finally augustine did and he gave his life over to Christ and he surrendered and he wrote this about the desires that were inside of him and him surrendering to Jesus and he said this how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which i had once feared to lose you drove them from me you who are the true the sovereign joy you drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. His testimony was God worked in me, and even the desires, not just doing, but even the desires, the will and the, and the doing, he pushed it out. And I found that he was better than it all. Some of you have thought to yourself, why am I so miserable? And first I would ask, are you saved? Because you need to know the love of God and you need to know his salvation and to put your faith and trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But for most of the room, you're saved in it. And maybe now or maybe even previously you've you've thought to yourself, I'm saved and I should have the joy of the Lord. I see this, I recognize this, but I still feel miserable. Why is that the case? Can I tell you? It's simple. When you accept him, he begins to work inside. And he begins to change those desires. And what you used to enjoy and relish and thrive on, you can do it, but it's gonna be different now. Because he's working inside of you and you'll no longer be able to, I'm sorry if no one told you this, but sin just loses some of its luster once you sin when you're a Christian. Now, there, now there's a guilt that I once did not have, and now there's some conviction, and now the Lord's working on me, and now there's something He's working inside of me, and I can feel it. And for some of you, it's just that you're not taking your maturation seriously, you're not living in light of the gospel, and if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be miserable if you're not living in light of the gospel, God wants it to be that way. He wants to work that inside of you. He wants you to feel that pressure and to move back towards him. And you just can't enjoy your sin like you used to. I'm sorry, but you just can't. It's like trying to pour Coca-Cola into your gas tank and run down the road on it. It just doesn't work that way. You pour sin into your life as a Christian and expect still joy and fruitfulness and that this is, everything's just gonna be fine and dandy and great. It won't work that way. But I can promise you, If you begin to pursue him and to take that seriously and to put that first and to begin to surrender to him and say, Lord, I need your help, I can't do this, but I need you work in me. This is my desire, this is what I want. That he will change that and there is a joy and a fruitfulness that surpasses anything that, that humans could even explain. A peace that passes understanding. And this is meant to happen. It does happen inside of you, so cherish it. Embrace and say, Lord, I want you to work in all of this. Paul says is of His good pleasure. It's the word Eudokia, good pleasure. What this means is that I want to live an exemplary life, not for the fanfare of other people. I'm not an applauseaholic. I'm not looking to get boys and you're so good and, and look at them. They're a perfect model of Christianity. I don't, I don't need the spotlight. It's far less important what people think of me. What's important is that I'm making my heavenly father happy and I'm living in light of the gospel. I'm an ambassador for him because of his kindness, not because of my cleverness. So I'm going to pursue relationship with him. I'm going to pursue living out the gospel practically. I'm going to pursue taking my Christian life seriously out of love for him, for his good pleasure. Not for me and not for other people, for him. And if you were to take these two verses that are often misunderstood, but are so beautiful. Paul says this. He says, my dear friends, You have a long history of obedience. And I'm not going to be with you. I'm absent. So take take your Christian growth personally and take it seriously. But understand that God works in you. He's producing the desire. He's producing the the ability. He's producing the energy. And this all ends up in his good pleasure and in his glory. So depend on him. And I dare say, honestly, I, I feel like I could reflect those words to our church family. I feel like I could say my beloved, my friends, people who I love, you, I I honestly believe that our church, we're not perfect now, nor have we ever been, but I feel like our church has a long history of wanting to be obedient to God's word, of wanting to please him, of wanting to, of wanting to be good Christians and take it to heart. And I will tell you, I love that. Continue to take it personally. Continue to take it seriously. Don't let let the weeds grow up in your heart and begin to root out and choke out the desires for Jesus. Take it personally. Take it seriously and understand that it's God that works in you. You have to have a wholehearted dependence on him. You're not gonna will yourself. You need to show up. But God works in and through both to will and to do and it's it's for his good pleasure. It's because we love him. The end. The end. Paul will get much more practical in a deeper way, and we'll cover that next week. But that's that's the sum total of these two verses. And I hope that that's your prayer, that that's your desire, that's your heart. Today, this week, this month, I want to take my Christian life very personally and very seriously, and I want to do it in his power for his love and his good pleasure.